So we are so excited for today's panel. We are very lucky to have a number of experts and legal scholars on this panel who will help us understand the complex issues involved in the use of artificial intelligence risk assessment tools in sentencing. First, we have the Honorable Judge Jed Rakoff, who will be moderating today's panel. Judge Rakoff uh, has served as a federal district judge for the Southern District of New York since 1996. Since going on the bench in 1996, um, Judge Rakoff has authored over 1,500 judicial opinions and has also frequently sat by designation on the 2nd, 3rd, and 9th U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeal. We also have Professor Deborah Hellman, who is the David Lurton Massey Professor of Law and the Director for the Center of Law and Philosophy here at UVA Law. Professor Hellman's work focuses on equal protection law and its philosophical justifications, as well as the relationship between money and legal rights. Next, we have Professor Jessica Eaglin from uh, Indiana University Mar School of Law. She is an expert in criminal law, evidence, and federal sentencing law. We also welcome Mr. Alex Cholis Wood, the Executive Director of the Stanford Computational Policy Lab. Um, Alex is a current PhD student at Stanford University. He has led the development of data-driven tools in both the private and public sectors, including as the Director of Analytics for the New York Police Department. And finally, we welcome Ms. Julia Dressel. Julia is a software engineer at Recidivas, a technology nonprofit building data analytics tools to power uh, decarceration efforts. So first, I would like to invite each of our panelists to offer some brief opening remarks, um, and maybe we can start in the order that they appear on my screen. So Professor Hellman, would you like to go first? Sure, and I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you both, uh, both journals for putting on this fabulous event, and I feel very honored to be up here with such great panelists. I'm sure it's going to be a super interesting discussion. So within this uh, issue or in this space, what I've mostly focused on are issues related to the fairness of algorithmic decision making or questions of discrimination. I'm actually becoming interested in other areas, but that's really what I'm going to focus on here. Um, so um, the issue of algorithmic fairness in the context of uh, criminal justice, got a lot of attention through um, uh, expose, I guess you'd say, in uh, ProPublica magazine that uh, emphasized a particular algorithmic tool called Compass and the way that it affected, uh, it, the way that it was used in the criminal justice context. And essentially, the dispute about that tool uh, created some interesting questions because the tool treated different groups of people the same in one respect and differently in another respect. And um, it wasn't possible to treat the two groups of people, let's say blacks and whites, but this would be true with regard to other groups as well. It isn't possible to treat them the same in both dimensions, thereby giving rise to the question, which of these dimensions ought we to care about? So let me tell you a little bit about the dimensions and some thoughts I have on it. And here I'm mostly drawing from the paper um, measuring algorithmic fairness that Shweta referred to a moment ago. So one of the ways that you could treat the two groups, let's say blacks and whites is the same, you could call equal predictive accuracy. And here the idea is that a black person and a white person who are scored by the tool, um, if, they're if they both get the same score, that score should be equally predictive for, for blacks and whites or for each of those two people. Um, they should be equally likely to recidivate if we're using it to predict recidivism. Um, so that's one way in which we can treat the two groups differently. Another way you could call error rate balance. And 
here the idea is that a black person and a white person who get the same, uh, excuse me, who are who do not go on to recidivate, who uh, over time don't recidivate, are equally likely to have been characterized as low risk by the tool. So the first metric that I referred to, that I called equal predictive accuracy begins with a score and asks about its ability to predict reality. And the second measure begins with reality and asks about how well it's captured by the score. So in that paper, I make, uh, I guess you could say three contributions that I just wanna uh, describe briefly what they are and I'm not gonna say that much about them, but I'm happy to talk about them in Q&A. So the first point that I make is that the first measure, that is that the score should be equally predictive for each of the two groups, is a measure that relates to what we ought to believe. It tells us what we ought to believe about whether the people of those two groups are, are likely to recidivate. And as such, as a measure about what we ought to believe is, is less apt or maybe inapt as a measure of fairness, because fairness, generally speaking, relates to what we ought to do. And a measure that's focused on what we ought to believe isn't a naturally good tool to tell us something about fairness. The second measure, um, um, the one that is about uh, whether a black person and a white person who, who don't go on to recidivate are equally likely to be characterized well or poorly by the tool, um, does relate to issues that uh, are in the kind of fairness space. So I think it is relevant to fairness, though it's not a, it's more suggestive of unfairness rather than being absolutely a measure of unfairness. And the third point is that if the tool were to explicitly take account of race, which the tool does not, that is actually have a racial classification within it, it might be improved both as to accuracy and as to fairness, but most people who develop and work on these tools think that it, that there are legal prohibitions about explicit, um, that would prohibit explicit racial classification within the tool. And the third point I want to make is that that's not as clearly so as one might think. That is, one can make arguments for why that isn't problematic from the perspective of constitutional law. Obviously, there are arguments you could make against that, but it isn't the slam dunk that people take it to be. So I'll stop there and happy to talk about any of that in, any, in the Q&A. Thank you, Professor Hellman. Um, Alex, do you wanna go next? Sure. Um, so I, I'll also maybe just sort of briefly, I don't know sort of how well people are familiar with this idea of what risk assessments are, but maybe just briefly introduce the idea of what these tools do. So risk assessments are, are, are generally meant to um, inform these high stakes judicial decisions. Like um, I'm most familiar with the pretrial context where you're thinking about whether to detain somebody before their trial. But also I know we're talking today about sort of sentencing decisions that are made by a judge as well. So these tools are meant to inform those decisions. Um, and really the, the sort of key strategy is that these tools are meant to predict misconduct, whether it's future recidivism or um, in the pretrial context, you might also be concerned about whether somebody is going to appear at their court date. Um, most of these tools are actually relatively simple statistical instruments. They're something that you could probably calculate on the back of a napkin if you really sort of came to it, even though a lot of these uh, end up being proprietary and, and not visible to the public as tools themselves. 
And these, these instruments or these statistical algorithms usually bring in factors as, uh, such as age and criminal history. Um, there are other factors like um, race and gender um, that Professor Hellman mentioned that, that maybe are, are, are uh, much more controversial in terms of including, inclusion in these algorithms. So I'll talk a little bit about sort of the advantages. Um, I, I, I'm guessing um, a lot of the, the discussion today will be about the concerns, which I, which I, which I share some concerns myself. Um, one advantage of, of using these tools is that it's possible that they'll bring consist consistency to judicial decisions. Um, one context that um, our lab examined looked at uh, pretrial detention decisions in one jurisdiction and found that if you looked at two different judges, one judge was detaining 50% of the people that they saw who came to their court, and another judge was, uh, was releasing 90% um, of the people that came to their court. So essentially, um, and that was even after adjusting for case factors. So essentially, uh, you know, a defendant's outcome could really vary very widely depending on which judge they were assigned to. And I don't think that any of us sort of want that outcome in the criminal justice system. And so the idea here is that these tools could in theory help uh, bring those sort of different uh, uh, detention rates or other sort of important decisions in line across judges and make them more consistent for everybody. Uh, the other very related sort of advantage is that in theory, these tools also can provide a, a great amount of transparency to these very important decisions in the criminal justice process. So for example, if you can examine exactly what's going on under the hood, you know exactly what factors are being considered, uh, the court essentially is making a very explicit statement about how it constitutes or understands risk. And in that sense, uh, defendants and anybody else who's interested in the process can very clearly understand how risk is being measured for any, any given defendant. And I think that's a pretty marked uh, uh, improvement over the existing process where decisions are essentially made by a judge or, or, or really sort of um, uh, this much more sort of uh, opaque process that happens right now where we don't really have a, a clear sense of how those, that risk decision is made. Um, the sort of other thing, uh, sort of backing away from the, the really nitty gritty here about risk assessments themselves is I think there's a larger question about how, uh, or really what the policy is that algorithms are being used to support uh, in general. And so I think there's a normative question here uh, that, that's really relevant for this context of, uh, for sentencing, for example, um, we have to answer the question first of whether we actually want to use prison or sentencing in general uh, to avoid future recidivism. And if we agree on that premise, then I think uh, risk assessments are generally a very good tool to help inform that decision because if we're trying to prevent future recidivism, these are tools, like I mentioned, that can help bring uh, a consistency to that estimation and transparency to that process. Uh, but if we, if we sort of imagine that there might be other uses for sentencing, like rehabilitation, I would argue that risk assessments are a pretty poor tool in that sense. And so I think there's much bigger normative questions that we have to answer about what, sort of what the policies are that, that algorithms are supporting, that AI is supporting, uh, before we can really sort of answer questions about whether the algorithms are appropriate or the best tool for, for the decision. And I'll stop there. So Julia, do you wanna go next? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll keep this brief so we can get into the discussion. Uh, but I wanted to first talk about how important the racial context of the specific United States criminal justice system is in any conversation about algorithmic or statistical tools that are used within that system. And any sort of, you can hear the word machine learning, but you know any sort of statistical model that's making individual level prediction within the criminal justice system is going to be necessarily built on historical data about what has happened in that system. And you're going to 
you know, feed the model with historical data about who and what kinds of people have been trapped over and over again in that system. And then ask that machine or whatever you're building to make a prediction about the potential future recidivism of an individual person. And understanding the patterns of what has happened in that system historically is super important in understanding how those tools are going to be influenced by those patterns and the decisions that they make. And so I just wanted to give a couple quick statistics on the um, racial discrepancies that we currently have in the United States criminal justice system, because I think it's just super important context to have. And a couple high level stats that we have are that black adults in our system are almost, sorry, black adults in this country are almost six times more likely to be incarcerated than a white adult. And uh, Hispanic adults are around three times more likely to be incarcerated than a non-Hispanic white adult. And that black and Hispanic, um, excuse me, Hispanic individuals in our country comprise around 29% of the United States population, but they make up about 57% of the prison population. And so overall, we've got this system that has historically not treated people of different races and ethnicities equally, and has historically, as it you know, emerged from the Jim Crow South, has disproportionately policed and incarcerated people of color, predominantly black people in the country. And so as we're thinking about how an algorithmic tool is used in sentencing, like Alex said, um, used in pretrial, uh, it's used all over the system. Actually, these tools are used in pretty much all decisions that are made within the criminal justice system. Um, it's important to know these are the patterns that we've had in our system since its inception. And it's not surprising that any tool that we've made is aware of those patterns and is using those patterns that it learns about who gets trapped in the system over and over again in, to inform its decision about who it thinks will continue to get trapped in that same system. And um, specifically about the work that I do, um, I, in my role at Recidiviz, work with a lot of state data on what types of decisions are used using uh, risk assessments. And it can be anything from parole decisions to what kind of supervision level somebody's on if they're on probation or parole. Uh, they're used to determine whether someone's eligible for early release from probation. Um, they're used to determine the um, programming that somebody might be qualified for when they enter prison. So a lot of things. It's not only sentencing and it's not only kind of at the beginning entrance of the system, which people sometimes assume this is only used to kind of make beginning decisions about how somebody will be either detained pretrial or sentenced once they are um, in a sentencing situation. And uh, I think I'll leave it at that. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you, Julia. Um, I think Professor Eaglin is connected to audio. So uh, Professor Eaglin, do you wanna give your opening remarks now? Uh, thank you for the opportunity to participate in this conversation. Uh, so I became interested in actuarial risk assessments in the sentencing context um, as they were proliferating in response to um, or as a, a potential partial solution to uh, the phenomenon, the socio-historical phenomenon of mass incarceration and the exponential increase in the size of our prison population in the United States. Um, and there are so many issues with the tools, some of which I know have already been mentioned. And I apologize to Professor Dressler, I missed a few, um, or Dressel, I missed a few of her comments. Um, 
But I, I want to spend my few moments uh, talking a little bit about um, expanding beyond the challenges within the tools and understanding and, and sort of problematizing uh, the proliferation of these tools as an innovation to potentially reduce incarceration. Um, so one of the things that particularly interests me um, is the way that the tools actually shape how we think about the phenomenon of mass incarceration itself. Um, and I have written in the past about sort of what are the conceptual bases on which we, we legitimate or justify the expansion of these tools in response to mass incarceration. It's supposed to save us money. It's supposed to identify those individuals that are uh, potentially the most dangerous or um, the most likely to uh, recidivate, however we define that. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that in the question and answer. Uh, into the future. Um, but it also changes these other soft concepts that we think um, particularly are, are meant to constrain um, the expansion of the carceral state. Um, so I've written quite a bit about sort of the line between incapacitation and rehabilitation. And if we think that these tools are actually facilitating our ability to identify individuals for effective rehabilitation, which they're often offered as a justification to do. Um, and to the extent that what they actually are doing are identifying individuals who are subject uh, to more social, um, to more sort of social surveillance um, through the carceral state, uh, sometimes through things like drug courts and, and treatment, which are supposed to be benevolent and, and to connect individuals with much needed um, uh, social services, but often can um, expand um, to justify the offering of treatment services within the carceral state. Um, and as we at the same time are reducing or eliminating uh, services to communities most in need outside of the carceral state. Similarly, I've talked a little bit in, uh, in my research about, um, about our ideas of racial justice uh, and the ways that actuarial risk assessments can actually legitimate um, the, a, a notion of racial justice as, as what I've called uh, sort of formal, a formal idea of racial justice. Uh, when we are more concerned with treating people the same, when actually the reality is that people come to the carceral state and um, face sentencing from very different backgrounds. And those different backgrounds are, are captured and sort of um, standardized in actual risk assessments in, in deeply problematic ways. So there are the uh, sort of traditional controversial factors, things like age, um, things like uh, gender, uh, and while most actuarial risk assessments um, now no longer consider, um, um, consider race as an explicit perfect predictive factor, they did up until about 1974. But even without explicitly considering race, we know that it has um, that actuarial risk assessments are, have a negative um, impact um, in terms of um, tending to identify uh, individuals of color disproportionately, however we wanted to find that. And, and obviously that is a, a, a question about fairness that Professor Hellman has already talked a bit about. Um, but part of the reason why we have this issue is because 
the factors that are used to predict recidivism risk are not actually objective in our deeply racially and uh, economically stratified society. So things like age of first arrest are actually disproportionately occurring uh, in communities of color and poor communities in particular due to policing practices that we know are deeply problematic. But even things that we might, so things that are not criminal history are also deeply problematic. So actuarial risk assessments um, have, are, are sort of continually being offered that take into consideration factors like zip codes. Um, the uh, Pennsylvania uh, Sentencing Commission considered whether to uh, include zip codes as a predictive factor in actuarial risk assessment. That makes uh, a lot of sense. Again, if we understand the history of policing and disparate policing, where we know communities of colors um, are subjected to um, um, over-policing and under-policing in other ways that are ultimately reflected in the actual risk assessments itself. Um, and so if we think about not just the design of the tool, but contextualizing this this pursuit of the tool as a response to mass incarceration, it's a far less, um, uh, I guess, um, it's a far less uh, uh, uncontroversial, it's a much more controversial uh, uh, solution or partial solution that is being implemented in uh, the criminal justice system. And in a recent paper, and I'm happy to talk about this in Q&A as well, a recent paper that I wrote also talks about how uh, the, the epistemological implications of actuarial risk assessments, specifically for judges, um, and the sense in which um, we can't understand actuarial risk assessments without understanding the long history of sort of transformation in this space um, for judges that, that uh, were triggered in part by the expansion of sentencing guidelines. I write quite a bit about the federal sentencing guidelines in particular. Uh, which in some ways inverted what judges are supposed to be doing or have long conceptualized themselves as doing at sentencing from um, engaging in questions about uh, individual sort of justice. How did this person end up in the carceral state? Why and how, what kind of punishment would be appropriate for this person? To something that is far more in the vein of what David Garland has called individuation, uh, which is um, uh, sort of a focus on how we can uh, how we can sort of generalize uh, the process of individualizing um, in a way that I think can actually obscure uh, the expanding carceral state and the implications that that has and that are also reflected in the actual risk assessments themselves. So I'll leave the rest of it for Q and A, but those are my uh, a different way to sort of think about uh, the conversation about. Uh, actuarial risk assessments in the sentencing context in particular. Great, thank you so much, Professor Eaglin. Um, and thank you everyone for your preliminary remarks. Um, so without further ado, I will let Judge Rakoff take it away. So thank you very much. I'm intimidated. Uh, uh, everyone on this panel knows a lot more about uh, artificial intelligence uh, than I do. Uh, in fact, until about maybe 10 years ago, uh, I thought artificial intelligence was uh, what the Court of Appeals used when they were reversing me, um, which always seemed to be highly artificial, but uh, now I know better, of course. Uh, I do want to uh, put some questions, and each of my questions will be initially directed at one member of the panel, uh, but I, I encourage other members of the panel uh, to join in as well. Um, and my 
first question is uh, directed to Professor Eglin. Um, at least the cases I've read involving the use of artificial intelligence in sentencing uh, have focused on the fact that it measures recidivism, which is usually used in those cases, at least, as a basis for increasing the sentence beyond what it otherwise would be. Um, and I wonder whether that's a proper form of sentencing. Uh, this goes uh, more generally by the notion of incapacitation and looked at um, from one angle, uh, what you're saying is, uh, we're gonna increase your sentence, not because of what you did, but because of what we predict you will do in the future. And I wonder uh, whether that is really an appropriate uh, way for sentencing to proceed. So starting with Professor uh, Eglin, but uh, I encourage other members of the panel to respond as well. Thank you for that question. So, you know, what's interesting in the context of actuarial risk assessments is that proponents of the actuarial risk assessments would say that this is, in fact, an incorrect use of the tools as well, uh, that they are being offered in particular as a way to divert individuals. Um, and they're not, they're less concerned with what happens uh, to individuals who are identified as high risk and much more focused on what happens to individuals that are identified as low risk. Now, we can understand that as problematic. I think, uh, I think that it is. And part of the reason I think it's problematic to focus on it in this way is because that in itself has taken us away from thinking about why this individual is actually being identified as high risk. Um, and in, in previous work, I've done quite a bit of, of sort of exploration of, of what it is, what does actuarial risk, what does recidivism risk even mean? Um, most of the actuarial risk assessment tools that are being used today are predicting risk of uh, rearrest um, in like, usually I think it's about two years, two to three years uh, time period. Um, and part, we can't understand why somebody would be identified as being high risk of rearrest without thinking about problematic policing practices that disproportionately focus on um, individuals uh, that have already been uh, sort of um, connected in some way or touched by the, um, by the criminal justice system, which isn't to suggest that every single person that, that is identified as high risk is a person that doesn't, isn't, it wouldn't be whether a court was thinking about it from an incapacitation or a re retribution um, perspective, somebody that is um, sort of appropriately receiving some kind of punishment in, uh, in, uh, in prison uh, as a potential uh, sentence. But instead, the dilemma really lies in, to my mind, this policy, this policy decision to use this as a way to think about addressing and reducing incarceration. We shouldn't be surprised that the, that the courts are actually giving longer sentences to individuals that have, um, that have been identified as high risk. It's basically what the, what the tools are sending as a message, even if they're not being advocated to be used in that exact way. This is deeply controversial, um, but it's also something that we can only understand in the context of a sort of shift uh, that, that has been happening in the sentencing context and, and really in criminal administration for decades 
away from retribution as the guiding theory of punishment. Um, if we ever think that, the, if we ever really think that that actually came to fruition, which I question because our conception of what incapacitation is is quite broad and has influenced our ideas of, of moral desert as well. Um, so I think that part of the dilemma, as I, as I stated in my comments, is, is about narrowing the scope of what judges should be doing to first starting with which of the theories of punishment should be guiding them instead of passing judgment on this question of how often we are using incarceration as our primary mode of addressing social problems that are falling at their doorstep and that actuarial risk assessments do nothing to resolve. Did any other member of the panel wanted to comment on that? Let me move then to a very uh, different kind of question. Um, the algorithmic scales that are used uh, for the purpose of predicting uh, recidivism uh, have been the subject of uh, some criticism uh, that they are not really that reliable. Um, I read recently uh, uh, that some studies think that they are wrong 25 to 30% of the time, um, which seems like a, a pretty high uh, uh, error rate. Um, so I wonder, uh, uh, Julia Dressel, if you wanted to comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I have seen in my research specifically was on the tool Compass, which is the tool that uh, sparked the, the loudest kind of wake up call in around 2016, I think, with the ProPublica study. And that tool specifically has been found to have around a 65% accuracy, which is even worse than you're saying 25 <laughs> to 30% wrong. Um, that's, you know, 4 to 35% wrong. Um, and when you're thinking about the point of view of somebody whose life is in the balance, you know, this is either a question of whether they will be released before their trial, which could be weeks, months, you know, before their trial, or if it's influencing sentencing, there are a lot of people where a uh, inaccurate prediction in this context has very, very disastrous consequences. Uh, but I think actually a more prevalent question or like a more important question to be asking than what is the you know minute accuracy rates of these tools is the fact that there is no current widespread regulation of what the performance of these tools are and they have grown so prolifically throughout the criminal justice system because they have been acquired in the same way that Microsoft Office gets in you know implemented in a you know, judicial district or something like that. Uh, and so there's processes of procurement where different systems within the corrections uh, landscape, they are being sold technology and they're procuring this technology and using it with a lot of promise that they are going to really help either judges or you know, parole board make decisions. And until recently, there wasn't a lot of awareness that these tools were even being used. And until recently, also, there hasn't been much of a demand for regulation and for the tools to have to prove that they are actually doing what, they're, what they say they're doing. And so 
there isn't a lot of knowledge on what the standard accuracy is for a lot of these tools because there hasn't been a lot of standard regulation for what the accuracy is for what standard measures of fairness are then and should be held accountable for uh, the implementation of the tools. Uh, yes, uh, pr uh, Professor Hellman. I just wanted to um, ask a question about that research and to um, call attention to a little ambiguity in what we might mean when we talk about whether they're accurate or inaccurate. Because if a tool makes the prediction that it's 75% likely that so-and-so will recidivate um, and so-and-so doesn't recidivate, that doesn't mean that it wasn't 75% likely. You know, it's like the the polls that say uh, you're, you you get the weather report that says there's a 75% chance of rain and it doesn't rain. It doesn't mean that the, the weather report was inaccurate. So when we're talking about prediction, it's not so easy to say, I mean, we have to look in the aggregate. So I'm just curious about the studies you're referring to about whether they're um, making a, uh, giving a report about the the percentage of people who don't go on to recidivate or whether they consider that kind of a case to be an error, because I think it, it, it's a little bit different when we're talking about, about prediction. And the other thing that complicates it, of course, is if you release people and they recidivate, you have data on that. If you don't release people, you actually don't have data about the accuracy and that's a limitation that in the nature of things. So these questions I think are more complicated. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I think those are both, those are all really good points. Another thing I'd like to say is that the implementation of the tool affects the outcome that it's predicting, right? And so the um, fact that if you're rated as high risk in a pretrial setting, you're more likely to be detained pretrial, that is impacting the data on whether people released pretrial are going to commit a new crime before their trial. Um, and the studies that I was particularly talking about are looking at very, very binary classification. And so saying, given the people that we have usually two years of data for after the or after they were assessed is looking at a very binary, did they end up rearrested or not? And making that, you know, 65% accuracy claim on whether or not the risk prediction was towards recidivism or away from recidivism, and then whether or not that, you know, binary event happened. Um, but even measuring what the accuracy of a tool is, is super complicated because like Professor Eaglin said, the number of people that, or sorry, the trends of people that are more likely to be policed and are more likely to be arrested are highly, highly impacted by race, by neighborhood. And those mean that the uh, measurement of the actual thing that you're trying to identify from a prediction standpoint is super complicated and is also influenced by the prediction that happened to that person in whatever context. I wasn't totally sure I understood the the practical impact of Professor Hellman's question because um, what is the difference between saying um, I predict Mr. Jones will recidivate uh, but my uh, measurement is only right 75% of the time or my saying um, I think there's a 75% chance that he will recidivate. 
uh, doesn't it really sort of come down to the same thing? It's a 25% erroneous measure. Except if what you did is you gave Mr. Jones a score of, let's say, seven, that you think it's 70% likely that he'll recidivate, and then you get all the people who get, got a seven, and 70% of them did recidivate, and 30% didn't, then we might say that the tool was perfectly accurate in that 70% of the people who got a seven um, recidivated and 30 didn't, um, because the tool wasn't saying uh, in that instance, will recidivate, the tool was saying it's 70% likely that he'll recidivate. So you can't really answer the question, is it accurate as to the individual case? Because if he, no matter whether he recidivates or doesn't recidivate, if the tool said it was 70% likely that he would, there's no way to answer whether it's right or wrong as to him. There's only a way to answer in the aggregate. It's, it's interesting that because this is used by the judges, it's not subject in the federal system and uh, in most state systems, I believe, to Daubert analysis. If, you, if the prosecutor introduced one of these measures, it would be subject to a Daubert challenge. And one of the most important factors that a court would have to look at is error rate before even admitting it into evidence. But since it doesn't come in that way, it comes in through use by the judges, that kind of critique is not uh, authorized. Let me, let me ask a, a different question that's sort of related. Um, some of the uh, uh, companies who manufacture uh, these um, instruments um, don't allow um, lots of the underlying uh, key information about their design to be assessed because they're trade secrets and they're in competition uh, with other companies. Um, and, but doesn't that really present a, a serious problem in assessing whether they're uh, Alex Cholis Wood to comment first on that. Yeah, sure. I, I definitely um, agree with the characterization that it's problematic. Um, one way that I find that's actually really useful to think about these algorithms is that really they're, we're sort of um, making some false distinction with algorithms that they're sort of an entirely new thing. But in reality, they're just policies like everything else that you know happens in government. And I think there's reasons that bills are available to the public. Um, actually, one even sort of thing I think that we're all very intimately familiar with um, that's been coming up recently a lot is this idea of vaccine prioritization. And that, that system in itself that we all know, you know, the eldest people got vaccinated first or were eligible first, that whole process, you could absolutely call that an algorithm. And I think it would be sort of absurd for us to imagine a scenario in which a private company had some algorithm that was you know, uh, not inspectable by the public that prioritize people in the public to get vaccinated. I think that's like pretty obvious to us why we would see that as, as being very problematic. And, you know, in, in some sense, um, uh, like Julia mentioned earlier, these are really high stakes decisions, um, uh, just like a vaccine is. Um, and so we should uh, really sort of insist that these algorithms, if they're used in practice, are transparent. 
Um, and it, you know, I think it also gets to this idea that Professor Eaglin was, was mentioning earlier that um, uh, there are definitely problematic factors that could be incorporated in these algorithms. And so the idea of transparency um, really is, is super important. This did come up in a 2016 uh, Supreme Court case in Wisconsin. Um, I believe it was called Loomis versus Wisconsin. And um, actually one sort of um, theme of that case um, from Loomis who was, who was uh, contesting the results of um, the use of Compass on his sentencing decision um, was that in fact, um, he thought that uh, the inclusion of gender in the algorithm uh, was improper. And sort of that highlights um, uh, sort of aside from the inclusion of gender, which I think is a separate discussion, the idea that he sort of knew that gender was used and could contest its use in the calculation of his risk score points to this, this promise of risk assessments as being um, in sort of in their best form, a transparent way for risk to identify risk and to measure risk. Otherwise, we get into the situation that I think we all pretty under, easily understand that this is a problematic situation for, for risk assessments, if, if they're opaque. For those who um, uh, are interested, um, the citation for the Loomis case that was just uh, referred to is 881 Northwest 2nd 749, a decision of the Supreme Court of Wisconsin in 2016. Um, the um, uh, decision also says something that I found interesting. Uh, that's the nicest word I can put on it, uh, which is that uh, the judge would have re reached the same conclusion even without the algorithm. Well, fine. So why did we have the algorithm, right? Um, the, uh, but um, uh, let me um, uh, ask uh, a question that's already come up in some of the discussion so far, uh, and that is um, uh, whether these scales reflect uh, racial and gender bias and whether uh, that in itself makes them highly uh, problematic. And let me ask, uh, uh, Professor Hellman to start off the discussion of, about that. Thanks. I, that's that's a, a great question. And I want to pick up something both that Professor Eaglin said and also Julia Dressel. So I think actually uh, we should worry less about whether there's race or gender traits in the algorithm than the fact that, and I, I think this was uh, Julia Dressel who emphasized this, that we have a, a past that is filled with injustice and data is just information about the past. And so to the extent that you're making decisions based on past data, it's likely gonna carry forward some of those injustices. But I think one, and, and that's true about algorithms that are fancy AI, and that's true about the algorithms that are just decisions in our head. If the judge looked at the defendant and is trying to make a decision about whether to release him or her um, uh, on bail, that judge is, we don't know, that's a little black box there too. We don't know what's going on. And that's also likely to be infected by things from the past that we would characterize as injustice. One thing I wanna emphasize though, is that um, there, there are two ways in which injustice infects the, the past and therefore can 
make its way into these algorithmic decisions. And I think they're different and it's important to emphasize their difference. One gets a lot of attention and the other one gets less attention. Um, so the one that gets a lot of attention, I think is the idea like that biased policing practices, let's say, you know, if the police are policing African-American or other minority communities more, then there's gonna be more data about arrests of those people in those communities. And that if you're looking at that past data to make decisions, to make predictions about the future, that's going to import the biased policing practices into the predictions going forward. Um, so I would call that like accuracy affecting injustice. But there's also the fact that we've had all sorts of injustices in the past. And because of those past injustices, members of minority groups, let's say are poorer. And being poor often is associated with higher crime rates or less employment or other things that get factored in. And so that past injustice is baked into the data too, but not necessarily in a way that makes it less accurate. So the both factors are in there. And I think we have to think about how we wanna use these tools because they do reproduce both forms of injustice. Sometimes they make it less accurate. Sometimes they don't make it less accurate, but we still should be concerned about carrying that injustice forward. Um, but I think coming back to then something Alex said in the beginning, we all also have to ask the comparative question. It's not as if our minds or the minds of just judges are unbiased and transparent. So it's a comparative question about, are we making things worse or are we making things better? Because the alternative isn't some, a system that's free of those problems. So uh, Alex, you wanted to comment, several people wanted to comment. So we'll, well, let's start with Alex and then uh, uh, Jessica and then Julia. I'll make this quick. Um, I, I completely agree, um, Professor Hellman. And, and just to extend that, I think there, it's, it's really sort of important to not only think about these algorithms in isolation, but to really evaluate them in context. And I'll sort of just give this like two examples that illustrate why this is really important. One is that like, let's imagine that we have a super unfair biased algorithm that's put into, uh, in, implemented somewhere. But as you mentioned um, that like maybe the judges in that jurisdiction, they completely ignore it. It's never used and actually outcomes don't change there at all. So even though this algorithm itself might be really problematic, if outcomes aren't really changing, that's like a, you know, a situation in which like we might really be focused on the algorithm being problematic, but in fact, like there's not really anything going on. Um, conversely, it's possible that we could create an algorithm or maybe even sort of a, a, a pipe dream, but let's imagine we can create an algorithm where that's like perfectly unbiased. It, it's it's um, totally fair. We put it into practice and in that jurisdiction, judges only use that algorithm selectively to incarcerate black defendants. Uh, and so I think there's this like sort of myopic focus on the algorithm itself. I, I think there's a huge uh, importance to actually evaluate these things in practice and see how they influence judicial behavior over time. And unfortunately that research has been somewhat lacking, but um, that's really where I see the big gap happening is how are, how are these changing uh, judicial decisions and, and how is it impacting, you know, uh, sort of all the communities we care about, including black communities. Jessica. You're now you're muted. <laughs> I just, this is not my day. I'm sorry. It's a Friday afternoon. I'm I'm my mind is elsewhere. Okay, so I have several things I want to say about this. Um, you know, my first comment, um, and I think, um, you know, is that 
we can't understand sort of inequities, but I, I, I pause to characterize them as things of our past when they are very much things of our present. Um, but inequities that generate from, for example, you know, disparate policing, which I think we are all very much aware of, or things like um, like poverty, um, which actually themselves can also be built out of policing practices. And, and, and you know, that doesn't mean we can fix all of that in a tool. And I think that's very much part of what um, Professor Hellman is getting at. But it's also, you know, it's tricky when we start to think of these things as completely independent when we go into designing a tool. Um, and, and to then perceive of the tool as being itself objective because it treats these things as different when actually in, in sort of our social reality, these things are all sort of building on one another. So, so I take pause um, with that, um, but I do think that it highlights a point that I was actually going to make earlier in response to a comment Alex made, um, which is, you know, it, it's not just about um, sort of what judges do with the tool, because part of the problem is, is our perception that the tools are in fact objective. When they're not, they're very much constructed, right? Um, you know, those, those big questions, like what are the kinds of things we are predicting? You know, when we say recidivism, um, you know, what are we, what is it that we're measuring? Well, we tend to be using the kind of data that is easily accessible. So things like low level arrests, um, you know, misdemeanor arrests, those kinds of things, Things, they're just very easy for us to to get our hands on as developers not I shouldn't say us because I'm not one um, but what we've seen is that these are kind of the sort of easy metrics to use but it's not necessarily that those are the metrics that we should be using now to this point you know what else could we be measuring well we know again going back to things like selective policing practices um, that we also have this deep history of things, for example, like um, uh, white collar crime. We're not measuring that. That's not in our actual risk assessments. Why isn't that in our actual risk assessments? Those are normative decisions about what are the things that we choose to measure that exist within the tool. And then if we perceive of those tools as being objective are going to influence judges. And I, I appreciated uh, Judge Rakoff's point uh, the you know are we surprised that judges are using them? No, like this is what they this is what they were designed to do, and and for a judge to say that this is what we would have done otherwise uh, doesn't doesn't sort of negate the fact that the tools themselves have these problems. Now, uh, Alex also added earlier on saying you know this is a problem of transparency, and you know I think that that. Um, something I've written about in the past is, you know, what is the problem of transparency? Is the problem of transparency a question of you know? Um, that this was a privately developed tool as opposed to a publicly developed tool, that is a problem. But the deeper problem is that we don't understand what the tools are doing, right? That we don't understand that we don't even understand what the data is doing, you know, what what is the data being selected? So there's so many, so many necessary points of sort of intervention, not just through um, th through sort of judicial critique, um, uh, but but literally through sort of public engagement about um, sort of what does it mean to adopt a tool that I think uh, by up until this point have been largely sort of eliminated from, from the discourse around adopting these actuarial risk assessments. It's not just a question of sort of what tool we should use, but like what are the tools supposed to be telling us? There's, we need more sort of intervention into that and, and, and particularly from the communities, in my opinion, that are gonna be most affected by this. And we already know that 
they're the they're the communities that are already being sort of disproportionately pushed into the carceral state. So, you know, if we are going to start with questions about transparency, I think that there's an obligation um, for sort of meaningful transparency, um, not technical transparency. Um, that that up until this point is sort of missing from the conversation. And Julia, you wanted to comment as well. Yeah, a lot of what I wanted to say has already been said, but what I think is important is thinking about if you are going to build any sort of actual actuarial risk assessment, that word's always hard, uh, or algorithmic tool in this context, you're thinking, okay, what are historical features that are predictive of recidivism or predictive of finding yourself incarcerated in our country? And you're gonna land on employment status, age, past criminal convictions is usually the most predictive factor in ending up in the system again. You're gonna land in all of these categories that very descriptively show how our country has criminalized different groups of people. And so you have the criminalization of poverty in our country, you have criminalization of mental health issues, and you have criminalization very explicitly of people of color, very historically in the system. And so you, no matter kind of which categories you latch onto and have enough data to be able to build a predictive tool, you are always going to be reinforcing historical categorizations of criminality going forward. And so anything that you are using that has any form of reliability in like a predictive way, excuse me, is going to be picking up on the ways in which we've disproportionately criminalized certain types of people or certain situations in the past and reinforcing and making that even worse going into the future. And then on top of it, when you have those inside of a black, maybe a black box technology or something that is hidden behind trade secrets, those categories of criminalization get solidified as objective truth and we start relying on them as more objective categories instead of looking at the system that we have, identifying where there are discrepancies and trying to ameliorate those discrepancies. And so um, going back to something I think Professor Eaglin brought up before, which is we need to start asking questions of why are we relying on these tools? In which context are we relying on these tools? And what questions are we trying to ask? And if we are trying, if we are using all this information about someone's need for housing and somebody's past criminal history and the fact that they don't have a job and et cetera, et cetera, all of these kind of risk factors for ending up in the system again. And we're asking a question of, oh, what's this person's risk? Cause we need to mitigate risk in a way that we're, we need to mitigate risk, sorry, their risk by punishing them, by detaining them, et cetera. Instead, can we start asking questions of what are these people's needs? Does this person have a housing need? Let's get them housing. Does this person have a mental health need? Let's divert them from prison and we need to be investing in resources that help in that way. So it's asking different kinds of questions and realizing that if we rely on the patterns of criminality that we have built over the last over a century, in order to make any kind of prediction of what will happen in the future, we will never get away from this like system of mass incarceration that dis disproportionately affects, negatively affects people of color in our country. So that's what I wanted to say. So um, before I get to my next question, the, the last comment I think um, uh, deserves a further elaboration, um, uh, as I'm sure everyone 
in this for that last comment. Every everyone in this audience knows that um, the uh, this country uh, has by far the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world, uh, averaging over the last two decades two million and more people in jail and prison. Uh, Sixty percent of whom are either young black males or young Hispanic males. Um, uh, a 500% increase over what our incarceration rate was in 1960. Um, uh, it's it's um, uh, a, a terrible situation. It is driven in my view in substantial part by mandatory minimums and career offender statutes and sentencing guidelines. And I wanna focus leading to the next question Mandatory minimums, career offender statutes, there's nothing a judge can do about that. Federal judges have been on record for at least 15 years as saying mandatory minimums are terrible uh, and create harsh and un inhuman sentences in many situations, but we're stuck with them until the legislature does something about it. Guidelines are a different matter. They were originally mandatory the first 15 years in the federal system, but now they're discretionary. Um, and uh, a question that's really hard to get at is whether they still impact sentencing or not. Uh, and I wanna put that same question in the context of these uh, uh, algorithm uh, uh, measures of recidivism. Um, uh, do, is it your view, it's really hard to know, but is it your view the judges are really using this or really just using this as a tool to camouflage a sentence they may have already arrived at for other reasons. And that's such a hard question that I'll start off with Professor Eaglet. <laughs> as a criminal law professor, you got to know the answer, right? Okay, so uh, thank you so much. Um, uh, I, I actually I want to respond to your question, and I also just want to add a, a quick point in, um, uh, in conjunction with uh, what Julia just said. So in response to what Julia said earlier, um, you know, I think also just to add to her point, part of the problem is, uh, is about thinking about solutions outside the carceral state, which we are very reticent to do. And so part of the way that actual risk assessments have sort of revived themselves in, um, in criminal sentencing has been um, through their being offered now as risk and needs assessments as opposed to just risk assessments. Um, and this is supposed to be sort of a new way to think about, um, about what this technology is doing. Um, but it also reflects a willingness to identify what people need and give it to them with sort of the the criminal arm hanging over their head. Um, and that's the only way they can get it. So they've got to pay for the services in the carceral state um, and they can't get it. And they're continually, you know, we're, we're moving away from giving them the opportunity to get such services that they need um, any other way. And so we really do have to understand this sort of in a more conceptually large um, framework. And I think that that's a lot of what um, Julia was getting at. So. To this this question uh, that uh, Judge Rakoff is uh, raising, you know, do judges use this? 
course they use it. Do they think they use it? Maybe not. Um, and I think that the, the analogy to, um, to sentencing guidelines is spot on. I mean, if we look at the history of federal sentencing guidelines in particular, judges were righteously angry when the sentencing guidelines were rolled out and said, this is not how, this is not what sentencing is. We know what sentencing is. And this reflection, this sort of mechanical numerical reflection of what sort of matters at sentencing is not a, an, a sort of one-to-one -to, -one to what we do. And as we have seen um, in the 15 years of mandatory sentencing guidelines, suddenly by the time the guidelines were rendered advisory, judges forgot or didn't ever learn how to sentence without that mechanical technology, right? And I think that we cannot understand why judges are not up in arms about actuarial risk assessments without understanding that they have already been conditioned to think in a completely different way about what sentencing is supposed to be um, and what kind of factors matter at sentencing. We have moved as a society in a direction towards saying that the things that matter are the things that we can measure and actuarial risk assessments are a thing that we can measure. And so of course it is going to be a thing that, that very much influences judges in their sentencing. I don't think it's the only thing they take into consideration, but I do think um, in line with the way that we that, that I and I think many others have sort of understood sentencing guidelines is that in a number of circumstances, they're making judges' job harder. They're making it harder for judges to be able to see and to distinguish why different people end up in the criminal justice system? What is the punishment for this for this crime, but also for this specific person? Actual risk assessments aren't actually giving us a lot of tools to help us do a better job of that. They're instead shifting the orientation of what it is we think matters at sentencing to the things that we can count, and then expecting and finding that judges are going to be influenced by that in many different ways. Following up on that, just to take the liberty um, of of being moderator to chime in, uh, the uh, uh, I thought the point you just made is so uh, terrific. Um, I was a criminal defense lawyer uh, before all these laws came into play, um, and so I have some feel for how sentencing was in the, in my view, good old days or bad old days, depending how you look at it. But most of my colleagues have never known anything other than mandatory minimums, career offender statutes, and sentencing guidelines. And so even though the sentencing guidelines are no longer mandatory, they play, in my view, a big role because they don't know better, so to speak. Um, they, they never experience anything um, uh, because they're a lot younger than me. Um, so uh, uh, this is a, a serious problem. Uh, I don't know if anyone else wanted to comment on that before we move on. Um, I should say that uh, we're now at the point where if there are questions from the audience, we'd be very happy uh, to take them. And uh, you can um, direct your, uh, through the chat um, uh, facility to uh, Shvita and she'll repeat them then uh, for the benefit of us. And do we have one uh, already, Shweta? Uh, we do not yet. Um, so if anyone has any questions, please feel free to put them in the general chat. Yeah. Sorry, Professor Eaglin, go ahead. I have a comment if we're waiting for, for questions. Um, I guess it's a comment and a question turning it to the moderator um, because, uh, you know, before the call, <laughs> before the talk started, we actually were, um, 
discussing very briefly uh, the question of Loomis. Um, and I know that Alex raised it as well, um, the Wisconsin decision from 2016. And I think that, um, you know, there's so many things to, to critique about that decision, although I think it was a well-intentioned decision. There are many issues with it. Um, but I wondered what your thoughts were, in particular in light of this question that you raised, Judge Rakoff, about sort of the, the way that we understand what sentencing is um, and how that may have evolved. If you have any thoughts on, on how that might have been reflected in the Loomis decision. So um, first, I want to say that I love Wisconsin. It is a beautiful state. I always enjoy whenever I have a chance to go there. Uh, but I respectfully think that the decision was wrong, wrong, wrong <laughs> uh, in many, many respects. Uh, but most in the sense that uh, I don't see uh, how a court can allow an algorithm to be used that you can't assess. This is the point that Alex was making before. We Transparency is central to the judicial process and certainly to the sentencing process. Um, and to say, oh, I'm going to make my sentence on the basis of a conclusion that was reached through an instrument, but I don't want to tell you how that instrument works. And I don't even want you to find out how that instrument works. Um, uh, uh, the the uh, uh, just take it as a given uh, and bam, uh, go to prison. Um, uh, so that does not strike me as um, uh, the way to proceed. Um, the great this a little bit off the subject, but the but not totally. The great problem with sensing in this country has historically been that it's perceived, not without reason, that different judges give different sentences for essentially the same crime and the same individual. I think that's often greatly overstated because in any case, there are often, you know, a hundred factors operating that a sensitive judge needs to take account of. Nevertheless, uh, I uh, uh, certainly when I was a criminal defense lawyer, uh, we all knew who were the harsh judges and who were the soft judges. And we always try to manipulate our cases before the soft judges. Uh, and so, but that curing that problem has, I think, led to worse problems. So the, the uh, and, and th this is just, I think, another example. Here is an attempt to give some um, scientific veneer um, to uh, uh, assessing just one factor, namely recidivism. And the very fact that it can be measured, although query whether those measures really are good, but assuming that even that they are good, by the very fact that it can be measured, it takes on a life and importance that I think is unfortunate. The same thing happens with the guidelines. The guidelines are more extreme in illustrating the point. So uh, the original guidelines and for many years said that uh, a one ounce of 
uh, crack cocaine was to be treated as the equivalent of 100 ounces of powder cocaine. Uh, there was no scientific basis for coming up with those figures. They, the Sentencing Commission just thought they sounded good, and they were reacting to the so-called crack cocaine epidemic of the late 1980s. The result of that was that crack cocaine sentences, which were predominantly of African-Americans, were vastly disproportionate to the sentences imposed on white cocaine, powder cocaine users. Um, and uh, uh, this, in my view, clear racism was justified as being an objective attempt to eliminate disparities through the sentencing guidelines uh, and their arithmetic approach. Now that's an extreme example and the, the what we're dealing with here in this panel is, doesn't fall into that extreme and, and I wanna be clear on that, but it illustrates to me the point um, that uh, this mumbo jumbo about numbers can often be very misleading. Now, do we have any so, questions? Yes, we do have a few questions. Um, so That's good, because I'm so embarrassed by my last answer, I wanted to, to uh, get out of here, but okay. <laughs> uh, so first up is Denny. Uh, do you, you can just unmute and ask a question. Okay, thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for uh, the discussion. It's very informative. I kind of have two questions, and it both sort of relates to the data. Um, question that Hel uh, Professor Hellman had, which is, so on for Compass, um, it sounds like they're using data to sort of predict recidivism, recidivism, yeah. But I can also see how like changes in laws and social programs, sort of like defund the police and all these new projects could affect the dynamics and sort of the cause and effect um, of that prediction tool. So is there sort of like a statutory like re-analysis or re-basically um, uh, uh, checking, you know, the newest set of data based on all these changes for accuracy or does it just, you know, you know, perpetually go forward? And the second question is related to sort of the historical data aspect. I imagine at some point somebody creating the AI tool is also inserting their sort of own normative views and deciding, you know, either the the, uh, the algorithm specifically, which algorithm to use or what data to curtail or which outliers to cut out. So if we're saying judges are sort of a black box, sort of human driven process, why would a human driven process at arm's length be better sort of in, you know, writ large? So Professor Hellman. Sounds like that was directed at me. So I don't mean to be the, you know, I actually have, I guess, I was gonna say, I don't mean to be the contrary one on the panel, but maybe that's like, you know, healthy for dialogue. Cause I think I have a more, um, a more mixed view of these tools than, than some folks on the panel. Um, but I will say I have a mixed view, not a, I'm just saying the more positive things sometimes because I think it's too, I, I think it's too simplistic to think that they're this black box and the other thing is not a black box because when the judges that Judge Rakoff referenced, the hard one and the soft one, make their sentencing decisions, we actually have no way to figure out what the factors are that went into those decisions. Um, 
And in fact, even if the person, him or herself, was trying to figure out what are, how, how much weight did I give to this factor versus that factor? Uh, personally, I don't know about you, but when I in, uh, examine my decision making, I don't know how much weight I gave to you know, various factors in making decisions. It's very, very hard to know. So we have to keep that comparative in mind. And it may be the case that we actually have more information about the factors affecting some of these algorithmic decisions than we do, I mean, the AI technical, technological ones than we do the human ones. Though I do think that, uh, as several comments uh, referenced, we tend to kind of fetishize the algorithmic tools in a way that we are more skeptical of human decision-making. We more readily recognize that it can be erroneous or biased or something like that. But it's not as if it's perfectly transparent and updated for new data as it comes in uh, all the time either. So let's just remember that. But um, I think, and this relates to the question that also that David Luban put in the chat about what tools, I'd like to know what other people think about this, what, what tools we have for requiring things of these tools. And so now I'm just gonna um, spitball here because I really don't know. And I think some other people have more information than me about, but I don't, under, I don't see why the legislature could not uh, put whatever qualifications or, or requirements it wants. Uh, that is the state legislature of whatever state, I, I think, could say that any tool that's used to make sentencing decisions has to be validated in certain ways, has to be updated in certain ways. Those were your questions, uh, Denny. I, I think they, they could, right? I mean, I don't know whether there are any such laws in place right now, but I don't see any uh, reason that they couldn't. Looks like Julia's leaning forward. She maybe knows about whether there are some laws in place like that. So this is outside of my area of expertise and I'm gonna pass the ball. Other comments? Professor Euclid, you can go ahead and respond. No, 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 I don't. I, if, you, if you are already, you were leaning forward, you go first. I'll, I'll follow up right, after you. Yeah. I was saying to my point I made a while ago is that there, the awareness of the misuse or the disparate impact of these tools, I feel like is grown a lot over the last couple of years. And I do not think that the legislation has caught up to it yet. And there have been uh, some effort, what they're, the biggest one that I'm thinking of specifically, because I uh, live in California was the SB 10 recently, uh, which was the Senate bill to eliminate cash bail with the direct replacement of cash bail in the whole state with algorithmic risk assessment. And within the uh, wording of that bill, there was some kind of attempt to, actually not really, there was poor attempt at what the regulations would be of those tools, of the implementation of those tools, of the validation of those tools, and of the you know consistent, um, yeah, basically the consistent validation that those tools are actually working. And so there hasn't been much legislative regulation of how transparent or what features can be used, et cetera. That does not mean that there shouldn't be. I think that there absolutely should be, uh, but there hasn't really been that I'm aware of. Maybe you know more than I do about uh, something that's implemented elsewhere. 
If I could just hop in. So yeah, no, they're not regulating it. And I think part of the problem is like, why aren't they regulating it? Um, and I've written, I've written about this a bit. I mean, you know, I think that we need like tons of regulation in this space, like questions about like what kind of data we should be able to use. Like we don't have that people are, it's just a normative thing. And like, and it's crazy. Like sometimes like, um, uh, for example, I think in Wisconsin, the actual risk assessment that they adopt was adopted by the Department of Corrections. Like it's not even, you know, um, and then they adopted another one uh, that was advanced by uh, by the Judicial Council. And we don't really know like who picked which one or why, like, and, you know, but it's not just like what tool it is. It's like what's in the tool is not really being regulated um, down to simple questions. Like what is the recidivism risk that we are measuring? They're not asking that question. You know, is the data coming from the state in which this tool is being applied? Not asking that question. You know, and the deeper question is like, is why not? And I think that this goes, um, you know, uh, uh, to to David's question, uh, David Lebon's question. They definitely can, and there have been sort of suggestions that they should be making some conditioning. I mean, the argument that you get from the developers is, well, we don't, we can't be too transparent in our tools. Like this is what makes them competitive, um, is that each of them is is slightly different. And you know, while we're happy to work with individual, um, you know, uh, decision makers, like you know, we have our own incentive to to keep this private for our own financial reasons, et cetera, et cetera, trade secret. Um, but the legislators have to actually have like the will to do this and and they don't uh, and and until recently they have not i mean in new york there's been a um initiative for um for accountable algorithms um across sort of the public sector so not just in the context of sentencing for example um but also in the context of like algorithms that are used to determine which schools um you know uh high school students are getting into and and, and just that whole complicated process that they have out there um and this dilemma that i highlighted um in response to alex's point has come up in that space where it's like what does transparency mean like transparency can be a deeply procedural thing like do we know like what the data is um that's not to me that's not good enough right it's got to be substantive like you know do we know why we have chosen this data do we have like what are the reasonings for it we really aren't there yet and i think that the reason that that hasn't happened is because of the perceived objectivity of the tools which has been and is continuing to be critiqued and attacked um not just in sort of the legal space but obviously of course in 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 the space of public discourse, um, which is so deeply important for, you know, if we're going to use them, which I'm, you know, deeply skeptical that they are doing, uh, you know, sort of what we benevolently think that they can be doing. Um, but even if we are going to, to use them, then we need to, to sort of change our own framework about, you know, what does it mean to be adopting um, some sort of technology into this decision-making process? And it's not enough to say that judges would be um, you know, judges would be transparent, so or, or lack transparency, and the tools have the potential to be transparent. That's not good enough. That's like, you know, very far from good enough because you can embed all kinds of decisions into uh, into a technology in and not ever have to ask meaningful questions about it that don't exist in the language of technology or technologists themselves. Um, and and so it's very important, I think, that 
that sort of law, I mean, this is why we're having conversations like this, that individuals, law, law students, you know, uh, law professors, legal minds start to sort of be critical of the tools. And that has everything to do with our own sort of our own perspective about, about the technology um, first and foremost. So um, I think, uh, Shweta, we have time for one more question if there is one. Yeah, um, so one question from Rachel Martin is, uh, do you think there's any way to use algorithms, uh, not necessarily the ones we have now, in a way that can provide some of the promised benefits like reducing incarceration while still avoiding the pitfalls? So who wants to take a crack at that? Uh, uh, Alex. Yeah, I think um, I definitely maybe sort of um, not super common viewpoint here, but I, I, I think that there is a lot of promise in, in using algorithms to, to allocate benefits. Um, one example is a is a intervention that I'm working on right now, where we're um, helping uh, people get to court by sending automated text message reminders to them to, to to help them remember that they have a court date. And this is something that's been shown to be very effective at increasing appearance rates. Um, and as, as a consequence, people can avoid having uh, arrest warrants put out on their head for missing a court date. Um, and so basically you can do this very simple, very cheap thing uh, of sending basically a, a, a text message that costs a couple cents to somebody. You can avoid this sort of whole horrible outcome where somebody uh, has a warrant uh, placed out uh, for their arrest. They go to jail because they missed a court date um, just by doing this very simple thing. Um, and the way that we're using algorithms in that context is by personalizing the content of the reminder so it's most effective for that individual. Um, and of course, there's there's still sort of equity concerns there about what the sort of personalization means and what kind of data we're using. That's something that we, we think about all the time. But certainly there's many contexts in which um, algorithms can really be used to, to reduce incarceration and, and improve outcomes across the board. Uh, uh, <laughs> Julia and then uh, Jessica. Yeah, I'll say it super briefly, something that we're working on at Recidivis is modeling the potential impact of a policy and that is using more predictive analytics, which, you know, the words kind of get all mumbled together. Uh, we're talking about machine learning, artificial intelligence, everything like that. But being able to use the trends of how people have moved through the system historically and how certain maybe crime classifications, et cetera, have impacted the flow through a state's system. And then saying, okay, given this policy, what do we predict the system level impact will be? And you can actually look if you have enough data on how um, race is related to certain classifications that are related to that policy, you can say, oh, we predict that this policy will actually have this positive impact on reducing disparities in this state. And so you can use data and an understanding of what has historically happened to make a positive, to kind of, you know, make a prediction at a system-wide level, which is pretty different than making a prediction of an individual person, but a system level, this is how we predict the system will respond to this wide statewide change and try to model also how that will have an impact on the racial disparities in that state and push for changes that are going to be reducing those disparities in that system. And Jessica. Uh, so I just wanna say that, um, uh, in response to Alex's comment, I think he said it spot on that this is a way, this is not the only way, and it might not be normatively the way that we want to reduce incarceration. It has tons of uh, some tons of additional costs, um, costs that somehow sort of get lost in the conversation. Um, for example, 
the cost of designing and maintaining an actuarial risk assessment, many of which uh, the states are paying for to these private companies. You know, do, if, if the judges are saying they would have done the same thing anyway, which I question, you know, do we want to spend our money this way or could we spend it in another way? Um, you know, I, I, I am familiar with uh, the project that Alex is talking about in terms of identifying um, and notifying individuals um, of court dates. And it, that sounds important, it is important. Um, but I also think that there are ways that we can address and reduce incarceration that are more structural. Um, and we can think about whether we want to put the onus on individuals uh, to sort of individually uh, reduce uh, the, the, uh, the incidence of incarceration or if we also want to sort of change the way that we as a society think about, um, you know, uh, offering services and, and things like that, that would also be sort of um, more significant in my mind, uh, but, but alternative ways to think about reducing incarceration. And the, the thing that, that really gets my goat, uh, there seems to be many things uh, on this panel that I have many things to say about, but the thing that gets my, that really gets me is that, is when people suggest that, that we can't reduce incarceration without this that we need the tools, we don't need the tools. We choose to use the tools, we choose this route and we, but that doesn't mean that it has to be the only way or the preferred way. And we need to find a way to find a, a sort of foundation for that conversation. I think we are pretty much at the end of our time. I did want to express my appreciation uh, both to uh, all the fine panelists and also to our two sponsors, which uh, for putting this, uh, I thought, very informative panel together. Um, so, uh, Shvita, anything further that you wanted to say? Um, I think that's it. I just wanted to say thank you again so much, everyone. Um, this was such a helpful, insightful panel. So thank you again for your time. <laughs>